0: Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris, featuring a selection of sermons and teaching series, including the one that we are currently in, a study of 1 Peter. We're going verse by verse through this book. We're beginning chapter number three today, and we'll look at the first seven verses. Here's what it says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. may not be hindered. So we're beginning chapter number three of 1 Peter. We've looked at several different themes so far in this book, and Peter is now continuing his kind of case study of the kind of conduct and submission to authority that he has in mind for all Christians, which he spoke of, broadly in chapter 2, and then he moved into more of a um, specific category of being subject to the civil realm. saw that in verse 13 and following of chapter 2, and then he was dealing with literal bond servants to their masters, and now he moves to the marital dynamic of wives and husbands. So let's Kind of camp out here and try to understand what it is that Peter is wanting us to take away from this particular application. So it is true that our Bibles do separate this passage into the beginning of chapter number three, but we shouldn't really view this passage as a change in conversation, which would drift us away from the real application that Peter seems to be making to us. And we can see this initially by simply viewing the first word of the chapter, which in the case of the ESV, the English Standard Version, which I read from, starts with the word likewise. So when we looked at chapter 2, we know that the point of emphasis was that of unjust suffering, subjection, and even more than that, coming underneath the heading of good deeds and honorable conduct. So even more than suffering and subjection, or unjust ones in that sense, this is all under that broad umbrella of good deeds and honorable conduct. So as we begin chapter 3, we shouldn't hear Peter basically do a side conversation of, now let's start talking about marriage. That would be a a failure to understand the, the true flow of the letter as a whole. As possible, if we're having conversations about marriage, it would be totally within bounds of applying scripture to jump to First Peter chapter three the same way that you would jump to Ephesians chapter five because those are clear, or 1 Corinthians seven because those are clear um, passages that deal with marriage. But if we're looking at the flow of the whole letter, we don't want to isolate it in an unhelpful way. We want to understand what it means in light of the whole dynamic, and that's really what he wants us to understand. Um, that's why Peter says that this is in like manner to the things that he previously spoke of in chapter 2. Okay, so the ministry of marriage for the Christian is perhaps one of the most important displays of the gospel. And We know that Ephesians 5, as I mentioned, maps out a comprehensive layout of how Husbands and wives relate to Christ, and the bride, who is the church. And I have no doubt that Peter does make a similar application. However, I believe that he paints another picture for us here, one that focuses on marriage not immediately in the way that Paul does for us in Ephesians 5, but instead by way of explaining its evangelistic display of our topic at hand, which is servanthood. So, let's examine the wife. She should be likewise in subjection, just as Christ modeled subjection for us. We saw that in chapter 2. Peter tells us why and in what way this takes place. He says, quote, so that they may be one without a word by the conduct, there's that key phrase, the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So again, Peter's point is seeing the servanthood of the wife as evangelistic. He says they, that they may be won. That's W-O-N for those of you who don't have the text in front of you. That they may be won or gained. This is, there's this evangelistic idea happening. And what is the matter of servanthood... That is to be displayed in the wife, her conduct, respectful and pure. So, this is not to lay weight on the wife in order to diminish her as inferior, but rather to show that the Christian ministry of subjection plays itself out beautifully through the pure conduct of wives. We know that Peter has this in mind, the idea of conduct as evangelism, because he's already described it in this way in verse number. 12 in chapter 2 he said keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day of visitation so women in general perhaps because of poor teaching and explanation view a phrase like be subject to your own husbands as a rebuke but peter is actually encouraging them to walk in step with the example of Christ, the servant, who, as we've already seen previously, modeled the ministry of servanthood and subjection perfectly for us. It is in this way, in this example, that women are to be subject in accordance with the way in which we are all to be subjected as believers. So now verse 4 Which says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse 4, in speaking of the gentle and quiet spirit, can be understood in like manner. That Christ did not revile, or curse, or speak in deceit, or threaten, but was one who remained silent. In this way, wives are to mimic Christ, being gentle and quiet. Is it any wonder that God finds this a very precious thing? Of course, because this context, this special qualification of what it means to be gentle and quiet, is to exemplify Christ, who was gentle and quiet. That is the precious template that wives are to strive towards. This is not a demeaning thing. Again, I have to emphasize that. But Peter further inquires about such a woman by giving reference to the holy women of old, and he uses Sarah and the other patriarchal wives as the example. So he identifies them in this way. Holy women, here's the key phrase, who hoped in God. This is the great emphasis given to them, that their holy conduct played out in step With their hope in God. Being holy, being gentle and quiet was a demonstration of of the fact that they were women that hoped in God. And this is quite an incredible identification, and one that we may well agree with when pondering the kind of woman that Peter insists they not be. So he says, Do not let your adorning be external. Now, some have taken this to the extreme in many so-called Christian dress codes, and I don't think that there's anything wrong, obviously, with an application of modesty. That is certainly within the bounds, and certainly something that women should do. It should They should be modest in the way they dress, the way they carry themselves. But Peter here is not trying to make a strict kind of um, dress code that certain denominations, uh, perhaps fundamentalist denominations, have a strict dress code of the way a woman's hair must be and the kind of dress that she must wear. That's not what Peter is doing here. So, there is room, certainly, for an application of modesty, of covering themselves so that the depths of their beauty are reserved for their husbands. That should be obvious to all of us, but the emphasis is that their conduct be in proportion to their hope in God. So, can a woman worried about pleasing men by seducing them, by competing with other women, truly concern herself, or even show the perception of concerning herself with God as her hope? That's the big question. All women who have solicited themselves physically for acceptance what they're doing is they're operating with unmet hope. But for God's daughters, for the wives of the saints, there is a different method of hope in God, and that is the precious adorning of this, submission to their husbands. And this may sound like a strange or even anti-climactic point here, as the mode of hope that Peter gives us submitting to her husband. Again, doesn't that sound demeaning? But that's what he says, and we must qualify it. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Now, we have to investigate this a little bit. If we look at such an example given to us, and thankfully Peter does give us an example here, of Sarah and Abraham, then we may well receive the context of this application. Let's consider, in what way did she submit to Abraham? Was he a domineering man? Was he abusive? No, there is certainly a call here to suffer for both men and women, so both husbands and wives are called to suffer, but that is hardly the context of Abraham and Sarah's marriage. They were a couple of, you remember the narrative that they... Were actually given away. It is true that Sarah was asked by Abraham to <clears throat> pretend that you're not my wife because he feared um, for both of their lives, and most importantly for his his life. But the giveaway uh, from the spectators around them that these two were actually husband and wife was the way that they saw uh, the way that they were seen laughing with each other, and that is hardly an evidence of this kind of domineering or abusive relationship. Instead, it was an example that these two were soulmates. These two were those who truly and deeply loved one another so much that they actually couldn't hide that from the public eye. So we must uh, understand the context that Peter is using, or the example that Peter is using of Abraham and Sarah, not an abusive, domineering relationship in the context of submitting to your husband. So please, uh, ladies who are hearing this, understand that qualifier. So, no doubt here, Abraham was a man who was following God. He's the father of the ideal faith in the Bible, and leading his family in proper response and obedience to God. This lifestyle brought trials. It it included leaving his homeland, entering into foreign kingdoms, and the reliability of Abraham's encounters with God as he testified to his wife at the moments that she wasn't right there by him. The years of a barren womb, the sacrifice or the attempted sacrifice of their son, we could go on and on with their life. This was certainly grounds for Peter to say with that example, for women to not fear anything that is frightening. But Sarah's response was instead, going by this template, this example for other women, Her response was continued submission to her husband. And such a hope in God is praised by being among her own children who walk in the similar way in the Christian life. Peter says, This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. So, ladies, you are her children if you do good, holy conduct, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, there are occasions when a woman does not submit to her husband because of an abusive, ungodly dynamic. The The category for submission is within the bounds of what the Bible teaches. So the Bible not only commands women to submit to their husbands if they're married, but the Bible also defines what submission is. So it's not as if the Bible just gives this blanket statement of submission and then says, well, submission is anything that the husband says. That's certainly not the case, because the husband, as the leader of his household, is also commanded by the Bible with a definition, a working definition, of what male leadership and male headship in the home is. So, the Bible does not call a man or a woman to go on with their enterprise of submission or leadership to the point of sinning. It's not as if your hands are tied, you must Submit, you must lead, even if that means sinning against God, because the qualifiers for leadership and submission are godly, biblical, holy endeavors. So, in order to fulfill those, you will not then have to sin, and that's so, so important for us to understand. So, the woman is told here, that you demonstrate your hope in God to the level that you submit to your own husbands. And again, Abraham here is the template of the husband in mind. Not a perfect man, but a godly man. And I I love the way that 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 phrase works. Do not, if you, and you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes we have ill-placed fear. We fear things that are ridiculous. We fear things that are, essentially, we fear the unknown. So we think about the worst-case scenario of a certain thing, and we fear the certain thing, not because it is really worthy of being feared, for all intents and purposes, but because the worst-case scenario of that thing would be frightening. That's what we typically fall into, both men and women. But Peter says, do not fear anything that is frightening. Do not fear anything that is formally, qualitatively, quantitatively frightening. And again, when we look at the life of Abraham and Sarah, we see true instances of when you should fear something that is frightening. That is not to say that the Bible gives a free pass to living in fear but it is to say that there will be moments when fear may try to creep in there will be moments when we may look at a certain situation that is not hypothetical but that is real and again we saw that in the life of Abraham and Sarah again and again if you recall the narrative if you don't go back to Genesis pick up in chapter 12 and keep reading and you'll see because the promise of God, but then decades of a barren womb. Leaving a homeland, leaving the safety that is certainly not like me leaving Florida and just moving to a different state in the country, but it entailed leaving all sense of security. It was a very dangerous thing to leave your homeland and to travel somewhere else. You are vulnerable in every way. That's a frightening thing. Um. Meeting the angel of the Lord and conversing with him, that's a frightening thing. Traveling from land to land and subjecting yourself to, um, such as the king of Egypt, who could have you killed on the spot, that's a frightening thing. Having to pretend that you're not married because you might lose your life, or the king might steal you away to be his own wife instead of Abraham's wife. That's a frightening thing. So these were moments where Sarah had a legitimate reason to be afraid. But the way that she demonstrated not giving in to fear was not by saying, well, whatever, but instead was hoping in God. She believed the promise of God just as Abraham did, but she demonstrated that by continued submission to her husband who also was pursuing the promise of God. So again, this is not a demeaning thing at all. Sarah demonstrates here a beautiful image of servanthood and submission to authority, just as the perfect example of Christ. Okay, so now, verse 7. Husbands, here we go. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now that's a mouthful of a verse. It's our last verse we'll consider today, and it is very important that we understand what's being said here. So Peter's word to men, to Christian husbands, is much shorter Than the six verses devoted to the wife. But the command is equal in importance and in weight. So the verse is a two part verse. First, Peter gives the command, and second, by his explanation of the command itself. So, first, the command is for husbands to dwell with, abide with, live with their wives according to knowledge. That's the literal rendering. So, our translation, the one I just read, says, in an understanding way, which certainly captures the gist of the command. But the word literally being knowledge brings with it a certain word and idea of doctrine and practice. Live with your wives according to knowledge, being the literal translation. The knowledge or doctrine at hand is the doctrine being unpacked to us by Peter regarding the example of Christ, the suffering servant in all of life. So Peter is saying, ensure that your way of life with your wife is in step with the example of Christ, since this is also her command as your wife to live with you as your husband. This knowledge or doctrine is really where we see that correlation to Paul in Ephesians 5, telling us that that the husband is to mimic Christ as the caregiver of his bride. Living in step with this would certainly be according to knowledge and not according to ignorance. So, one way to demonstrate living with your wife according to knowledge is to understand what the template of marriage is. If you're going to live in an understanding way, if you're going to be married according to knowledge, that means you must understand the working definition of marriage. And that is Christ and his church. That is the the perfect template, the perfect example, the true working definition of what marriage is. So, Christ and the church is not a footnote to marriage. It's more appropriate to say that marriage is a footnote to Christ and the church, which means that you can't rightly understand marriage, you can't rightly understand the husband and the wife, the calling that Peter gives to the wife and the husband here without understanding what marriage is to exemplify and honor, and that is Christ in the church. That would be a supreme way for a husband to live with your wife according to knowledge. But in regards to the husband doing this in an understanding way, gives way to honor. And that is another common theme that we saw in chapter 2. Furthermore, God is said to honor women who hope in God, chapter 3, and men are to practice in like manner honoring women, their wives, who hope in God. But they must also, and this is the main point that I see in this verse, live with her in a sympathetic understanding. And the question is, why? Well, Peter says the answer to this question is, because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So the phrase there carries speculation and confusion because Peter refers to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now again, it may sound in 21st century... Somebody such as myself to have to qualify everything that's being said, that I'm trying to make excuses for the Bible, or I'm trying to unawkwardize the awkward phraseology. And I do think that this is where the value of understanding the original Greek and New Testament, Hebrew and the Old Testament really does uh, demonstrate itself, because it is true that every translator has to make a choice. I often talk about those of you who uh, listened to some of the 5 Minutes to Better Bible reading examples of, of Bible translations, which I covered you know, months ago. Some of you may remember that I talked about language as color palettes. When you go to Lowe's, for example, or Home Depot, or Ace Hardware, or wherever it is you like to go, Walmart even, Walmart has a paint section, I don't know if you know that, I don't know if you'd, Want to waste your time there, but they do have one. So just insert your store of choice, and you go to the paint section. And there's all the different brands of paint, and they have all the color swatches that you can take a look at. Now, because a different brand is using a different kind of mixing ratio or color code, this is not a perfect example, but just understand that this is a uh, a good analogy, not a perfect one here that you can find very similar color swatches between the different brands. But if you walk over to a Sherwin-Williams color swatch, and then you try to walk over to a Bear Paint color swatch, or an Ace Hardware brand color swatch, or Valspar color swatch, You can probably find an example from each of those that are very similar, but not a perfect match. And that's because each of those color swatches come from that brand. Each one is similar, but not a one-to-one correlation. And that's the thing with language. Anybody who learns a different language quickly understands that One language may have one word to describe something. One may have three different words to describe it. While one language uses a word and the context determines the working definition, another language may have three different terms instead of having to use the context. And on and on I could go, but the point is working from one language to another is not a one-to-one correlation because if it were, there would be no point in having Different languages because they would all be um, to a point to a point of uniformity, and they're just not. They're very similar, but that is why you cannot replace learning an original language. Or if you appreciate, let's say, Mandarin Chinese, um, you have to learn Mandarin Chinese. You can't just simply translate everything to a one-to-one perfect correlation. That's the point that I want to make here. Just one example in our text, the the weaker vessel is a translation in English trying to work with what the original Greek is saying, but it is not a perfect translation. I think it's a good one, but because it's in English, we're bringing it into English from Koine Greek, a dead language that doesn't exist anymore, not like modern Greek, we have to be able to wrestle with the context to understand, or at least qualify, what's being said, okay? That was a very long side conversation, but I wanted to really help you understand the kind of decisions that translators are faced with. So, much can be said in this argument as to the meaning of Peter's phrase, but contextually, it's not an insult, okay? I want you to understand that. This is not an insult to call a woman a weaker vessel. It is a context that does carry a deep burden and challenge for men. The word weaker does indeed speak in terms of physical weakness, though some may argue otherwise. It has a challenge to sexism and feminism, since it asserts that women were designed to be helpers and not leaders of their husbands, and that flies in the face of The 21st century understanding. And this does, by calling the woman a weaker vessel, imply a certain type of frailty. But the word must not be disassociated from its most used sense, and that is in terms of sickness. Now, I know it sounds like I'm digging myself into a deeper and deeper hole the further I try to explain this. The image at hand is that of someone who is sick. And again, I must stress here. That the reason Peter reaches for this phrase is because he means to show in what way we are to show honor to women, not to degrade women. So, how does someone properly deal with someone who is confined to a sickbed? Well, they operate in a way that is understanding, a way that is according to knowledge, a way that is sympathetic, a way that is specially loving. There is a certain way that they must. Speak, ask, challenge, encourage, listen, and love someone who is on a sickbed. It would never be proper to bust open the doors of someone who is laying on a hospital bed, for example, and begin ordering them around and laying complaints and acting in a very ignorant, dishonorable, and domineering way. Why? Because that person is very frail that person is in a situation that requires the utmost care and honor. The problem is, most Peter understand that Peter's use of weaker vessel is just that, a dishonorable and domineering phrase towards women. But he no doubt Maybe even expects this, which is why he immediately qualifies by upholding women in this way. They are heirs with you, they are joint equal heirs of the grace of life. There is an equality that is being upheld here by Peter. And this points all the way back to chapter one, where we're talking about being heirs, being an inheritance. And Peter is saying both men and women alike, both wives and husbands alike, are joint heirs in this way. And that is all the more reason that we are to uphold our marital roles, both as different examples of mimicking Jesus Christ. And finally comes a warning for husbands. So again, please understand, Peter is seeking to honor the woman, and then he gives a a warning to husbands. So this would certainly help you understand that he is not uh, throwing out this male pro-masculinity, pro-chauvinistic type of an idea. He says, you are to live with your wives in an understanding way, to show honor to her, to remember that she's a joint heir. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, This is a sobering, straightforward, consistent thought with the character of God. He has warned us in similar ways. And let me just give you a couple examples of this. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15. God is rebuking the ungodly and he says, Isaiah 1.15, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Another example, Micah 3, verse 4. They will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer him. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Proverbs, another example. Proverbs chapter one verse twenty-eight Pardon me, Proverbs chapter eight, verse nine. Proverbs eight, twenty eight, Proverbs twenty eight, verse nine. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So these are not examples directly to the husband. They're examples of living in a way that is unbecoming of a Christian, living in a way that is antithetical to the gospel. In this context, living in a way that is antithetical to the marital role of a husband to live with his wife in an understanding way is an abomination to God, and therefore... Doing so would hinder our prayers. And this is a central, vital issue for the Christian. Simply put, this doesn't determine simply if your marriage is good or bad, but if you are at all walking with God or not. This is so important that although the the wife is given... Six verses of consideration, this last verse to the husband in verse 7, has a huge burden and a huge weight to it. And that makes sense for the husband who is the leader, who has the task of being the spiritual head of his household. That he's not to do so in a domineering way. He is to do so with understanding, according to knowledge with his wife, is to treat her with the same tenderness that you, as one visiting a beloved friend in the hospital, would not look at them as somebody to be yelled at, tossed and kicked around to serve your purposes, but instead, when you go to visit somebody in a hospital or go to their home because they're in bed sick, Peter is not calling women sick. What he is doing is he's saying that kind of tender care, that kind of careful loving consideration, that kind of attitude is the kind of attitude that husbands should have for their wives at all times. That is the kind of love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for us as his church. That's the main idea. So important for us to understand this, just as it's important for wives to understand that even in the face of things that are fearful, that wives are called to submit to their husbands, to love them the way that Sarah loved Abraham, to trust them the way that Sarah trusted Abraham. And It's a beautiful dynamic because both the husband and the wife are demonstrating and being examples of Jesus Christ. Okay, we'll stop there, verse 7. We'll pick it up at verse number 8 the next time on Teaching Thursdays. Thanks for listening to this. I hope it's been helpful so far. If you missed any of the previous ones, you can go to Apple Podcasts or YouTube and search Better Bible Reading. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. I would love for you to do that and share it with a friend if you find this to be especially helpful. You can find more resources at betterbiblereading.com. Again, this is Kevin Morris, and thank you so much for listening.